the words I speak and the words we hear be your life, your words of life to us, our God. Amen. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He also said, those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me and I am and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever eats me will live because of me. Eat my flesh, drink my blood. What on earth is that about? How do you respond to that? How many of you are with the disciples who thought that was far too difficult? How do you make sense of eat my flesh and drink my blood? What does it mean for you, for Jesus to say that? Well, I invite you to but think about that for a moment. You can talk to your neighbour if you like, or you can just talk to yourself quietly. It's probably not good if you talk out loud. And uh, just think about how do you respond to those two things? Eat my flesh, drink my blood. How do you make sense of that? What does it mean for how you live your lives? I'll just give you a minute or two to think about that. Anyone have any reflections they'd like to offer us? It's pretty difficult, isn't it? For the last five weeks, we have been weaving our way through John 6, delving deeper into the story around the great I am statement, Mm. I am the bread of life. And this is the last week. Thank goodness, some might say. And so this is why we have the faint aroma of bread in the air. My grand experiment, which may or may not have worked. That was supposed to have started probably three quarters of an hour ago, but I couldn't get the thing to cool down enough, but never mind. So there was also a wonderful bread aroma for the next service. So, beginning comments... Well, the first thing is to remember John's audience. Who is it that John is writing this gospel for? John, most people would suggest, wrote his gospel long after the events he's describing here. And long after the fall of the temple in Jerusalem. Which was a psychologically devastating event, not only for the Jewish community, but also for the Christian community, which at that point was part of the Jewish community, And then they got expelled from the synagogues. And the Jews got expelled from Palestine. So all of that was a psychologically devastating, dislocating event. event. The world had changed beyond anything that they could imagine. Added to that was the growing persecution by the Romans. They were being singled out. They had been noticed. They were... 
atheists. I mean, everyone believed in lots of gods, and here were these crazy people running around saying there was just one god. It made no sense to the Roman world. They were the atheists of the Roman world. And it was tough. It was too tough for some. And they left, just as John tells us, that significant numbers of John's, of Jesus' disciples leave. We heard that in today's story. The world had become a really dark place. And a lot of people were wondering what the future held, both for the church, that small, struggling entity in the midst of this Roman world, and for the world at large kind of reminds me of today, really, with many of us wondering what the future holds for our church and for the world. John was old. He knew his time was limited. And he wanted to help his church community know Christ in the midst of all of this doubt and fear. And he wanted to encourage them to hang on in there after he was gone. He wanted them to know that it was worth it. And he wanted to help them trust in God's goodness, in God's generosity, and God's love, despite all the evidence to the contrary. He wanted to help them continue to centre their lives on Christ. He wanted them to continue to trust to be loyal, to believe into this Christ. He wanted to help them not lose heart and to drift away as so many of his community already had. And in writing his gospel, he actually encourages us to hang hang on in there. He wants us to know that it is all worth it, despite the evidence to the contrary. He wants to help us trust in God's goodness and generosity and love. So the overriding question through the whole of his gospel is, who is Christ? Why should I believe in him? Why should I trust in him? And that is the overriding question of this chapter that we have spent the last five weeks meandering our way through. So we began five weeks ago with two stories. Who can remember what those two stories were five weeks ago? It's a long time. Anyone remember back that far? Well, one of them was the feeding of the 5,000. And the other one was Jesus walking on the water. And all of this comes out of the conversation that then comes next. Conversation sparked by the fact that these events in John happen at a particular time. Who can remember what that particular time of the year is? It's kind of crucial. Anyone remember? Passover. So in John, feeding of the 5,000 is at Passover. So Jesus goes off to the other side, he comes back to this side, Capernaum, and then he gets into a conversation 
conversation about Moses and the giving of the manna in the wilderness. The bread, well, they say that Moses gave them and Jesus gently says, well, actually it wasn't Moses. Moses had a hand in it, but actually it was God who gave the manna in the wilderness. Now, in this story, the first thing that John is doing is presenting Jesus as someone who is greater than Moses. Why should I trust in him? Because he is greater than our ancestor Moses. Not even just the equal of, but greater than. Our ancestor Moses was part of the giving of bread in the wilderness. This bread you eat and you die anyway. This bread spoils. The bread that I give gives eternal life. It will never spoil. Now I read somewhere that one of the metaphors for the law is bread. So another way that we can understand what Jesus is saying here, or John is saying about Jesus here, is Moses gave the law. But what Jesus gives is greater even than the law. Why should I trust in Jesus? Because he is greater than Moses and the law that we were given through him. Jesus is also presented as greater than the spirits that stir the depths. That's the walking on the water story. So in Jesus, John says, we are living in the presence of God the Father, the one who abides in Jesus. Jesus keeps saying this, the Father abides in me. When you are with Jesus, you are with the Father. And when we are with Jesus, Jesus, because we are with the Father, well, then we can abide in the Father as well. So what is that? So what then do we do with all this eat and drink stuff? Well, the first thing to say is, just as I said when we were doing the, five, the story of the feeding of the 5,000, don't get stuck on the, on the details. In John's Gospel, these miracle stories are called signs, which means they are signposts and they point to something. If we get stuck on the details of the sign, it's kind of like having a big debate, as I said then, about the merits of the signpost. So we go up to Cape Reinga, we look at the signpost up there and we have a big debate about the merits of that signpost and whether it's of any use to anything and we forget that actually the signpost is pointing to various things and actually the things that are important are important are the things that the signposts are pointing to. The signpost itself is immaterial. So the first thing is, don't get stuck on the details. If you do that, you're getting stuck on the signpost rather than on what's being pointed to. And that's what was happening here in the story today. The people listening to him got stuck on the details. Eat your flesh, drink your blood, that's crazy. You must be crazy. I'm out of here. And actually anyone who's thinking right should be out of here. We shouldn't be here with Jesus saying that kind of stuff to us. It's bizarre. But yet we're here. So at least we're not getting stuck on the details or we're kind of circling around the details wondering what to do with them. 
So where is this signpost pointing? Well, there are a number of ways to understand it. And the first is that bread and wine were the bread of peasants. They were the staple of the diet. You ate bread because that's all you could afford. You drank wine because, well, that was vaguely clean. The water sometimes was a bit dodgy, but the wine, you could vaguely trust that. The alcohol killed the bugs. So, the poor ate and drank bread and wine. So at one level, Jesus is saying that even in the food of the poorest people, God is found. That's a bit different from God is found in Jerusalem in a very flash building where you have to go through all kinds of rites to get anywhere near it and then you're not allowed near it anyway because that's where God is. Jesus is saying, in the commonest food, God is there. Every time you eat and drink, God is there. The second thing he's saying is that when we eat and drink, we are being invited into God's life for us. Now, some of you might have noticed that I mumble some words when I'm pouring the water into the wine when I'm preparing the the gifts. And this isn't quite the kosher prayer that other people pray, but the prayer that I pray is that as this water mingles with this wine, so may your divinity mingle with our humanity and your humanity lead us into the life of the Trinity. We are being mingled with God's divinity reminded of who we are made in the image of God means actually there is divinity in us and Jesus came to remind us of that so every time we come to communion we are reminded of that fact the water reminds us that God that Jesus divinity mingled with our humanity to remind us that we are also divine And in doing so, we are led back into the heart of God, the heart of the Trinity. So the last thing, another way that we can understand all of this is that it is about communion. And certainly for a large chunk of the church, that's what they understand all this to be about, communion. That when we come to communion, we are doing exactly what John was talking about, what Jesus was talking about in John 6. Trouble with that is that we then forget about all the ordinary meals. You know, like this is special, this is cool, and it kind of going back to the temple stuff, really. But actually, when we come to communion, we are invited to pay attention to the ordinary meals as well. That God is found in the ordinariness. And we are also reminded that God is mingling with our humanity. And that through all of that, through Jesus, we are being drawn into the life of God, into the abundance of God, into the generosity of God, into the love that is God. So all of this brings us back to those first hearers who were wondering what the future held for their faith communities, for their church and for the world. 
Now, I've often said, and I think I preached a sermon on this quite recently, and I've often heard it said that in Jesus, God meets us in our deepest longings and desires. But actually, I'm not sure that's what John is saying here. I suspect that actually what John is saying is that Jesus meets us in our deepest fears. In the things that we dread the most. In the things that prevent us from really accepting that we are being drawn into God's life and love and generosity. The things we fear for our community, the things we fear for the church, the things we fear for our world, the things we fear for ourselves. We are so often driven by fear. Not what we hope for, but what we fear. If you don't believe me, read a newspaper. Watch the TV news. What sells? Fear. They are trying to make us afraid. Politicians know it. They do two things. First is, you should be really afraid of this. Second thing, we will fix it. Things you never knew you should be afraid of, you're soon afraid of. Things like boat people, criminals, the economy. We should all be afraid of these things. And the politicians argue about who's got the best plan to fix it. Here's a question. Should we be afraid of half the things they tell us? Most of the time, we shouldn't be afraid at all. It's a false fear. We are driven by our fear. So in this morning's Gospel, Jesus is saying... That when we pay attention, when we eat the bread and drink the cup, when we mingle with God, those fears are met. And we can let go of them. And we are able to start living anew, born again. Abiding in the life of God, in the abundance of God, in the generosity of God, in the love that is God. So... What are your deepest fears? Now, I did a practice run with the bread, and it was supposed to be on fast bake. You can't do fast bake on a time delay. And I needed to do a time delay because I wasn't willing to be here at 5 o'clock in the morning. So, I think it's a little bit weird, but that's alright. And then it was too hot to start the next loaf, which was supposed to be for the next service. So, So, disaster. But never mind. I'm going to hand out some of this weird bread, and I want you to eat it, and I want you to think about what is, what is it that you fear the most? And what is it that Jesus is inviting you to when he says, eat my flesh and drink my blood? What is it that you're being invited to let go of, and what is the life that you're being invited into? What does it mean for you? to eat and drink.